Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, seventy-seven times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold, together with his wife and children and all his possessions, and payment be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, Have patience with me. I will repay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he said, Pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had with you? And in anger his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Were you struck by a marked contrast in our readings this morning? In truth, the contrast can be found throughout all of the Bible, but and it can be hard to make some sense of. It's a contrast between a God who, on the one hand, seems to ruthlessly defend his people and enact justice on their enemies, but on the other hand, he teaches virtually unlimited forgiveness. How do we reconcile these two teachings, these two stories? I was particularly struck by a line from Exodus, which follows the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea and the destruction of the mighty Egyptian army. Having crossed in what was no doubt a whirlwind of activity, the Israelites look back now in a moment of calm, and they see the Egyptians dead on the seashore. The battle of over is over, and all that remains is this carnage of war. And then we hear this line. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. As they say in slang today, Things just got real. Can you even imagine in that one moment, right, as the, the terror of that chaos subsides, the, the miracle of the parting sea, the frenetic crossing on dry land as enemies are approaching, as all of that is now coming to an end, a, a denouement. Imagine all that really was being revealed to the Israelites who had eyes to see and ears to hear. 
Imagine what might have been going through the mind of the Israelites, the God of their fathers, the God that they had heard about, but frankly, it had been centuries before this God had revealed himself to them. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Well, he was real. It wasn't just mythology. It wasn't just a fable. This God had now revealed himself to the Israelites and the Egyptians. Maybe for the first time in many centuries, some of these Israelites were saying, oh, it's all true. And not only did the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob exist, he was powerful and strong, able to reveal himself as not only the God of all creation, but a God who had this special relationship and even love for these 12 tribes now breaking out of Egypt. And now in this moment, they had to realize there was no turning back. I mean, as they looked back and saw a pile of bodies on the seashore behind them, there was no going back. They were on their own, except for God, of course, who is a good companion to have in such a journey. But, you know, while the, Israel, the Egyptians, rather, were cruel, you know, they did provide food and shelter, and even that protection, meager though it may have been, was now gone. Any security that the Israelites could have hoped for was gone. All that lay before them was a vast stretch of land and a future destination of land that had been promised hundreds of years before. What heavy hearts many of them must have had. For while they were now free, they could not imagine what the future held. And lest we romanticize this, or think that this was accomplished calmly, or at no serious cost. Hear this descriptive line again, a, a line we might easily pass over in the reading of the story of the parting of the sea. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. If God wasn't real before, he was now. If his desire to forge a people through this covenant with Abraham and his children, if that was in doubt before, it could not be now. For God was willing to create this people and get them into their land at the expense of those dead Egyptians on the seashore. I'm curious, what do you think about such a God? Do we find it hard to believe that God prefers and chooses some people, even at the expense of others? Do we think this is a method of his saving some and not others? One of the reasons I think these sorts of stories, the miracle of crossing the Red Sea, is so often doubted is so that we don't have to believe lines like this. Israel looked back and saw a bunch of dead Egyptians on the seashore. One wonders what was going through the minds of the Israelites at the time. Were they relieved to know that this God was on their side? Or terrified that this God existed, right? For if he is this powerful, and he is this holy, and he is this unwilling to compromise with the worship of false gods, 
it's good news that he's on the side of the uh, Israelites, the 12 tribes, practically escorting them into the land of Israel. However, if he's this powerful, what might he do to us when we are disobedient? And sure enough, as we continue on in the Old Testament, we see that God, in fact, does punish the Israelites when they worship false gods. What Israel just witnessed as they looked back and saw those dead Egyptians behind them, this was unequivocally God's justice. Justice mentioned, by the way, in our New Testament text as well, right at the end. But see, these Egyptians, lest we feel sorry for them, they had no excuse. They worshipped false gods even though they were offered many evidences of the one true God. Lest we forget, they murdered babies. What we see in this story is old-fashioned judgment by God. Judgment that we must defend as God's right to mete out even on us. Now, a contrast to that story with the Egyptians perhaps comes with Matthew 18 and the story of this sort of almost unlimited forgiveness. Now, Peter, in asking the question of how often should we forgive, he's probably following up on a teaching from Jesus. It's recorded in Luke, so it's hard to know the exact chronology. But before, Jesus says, if someone asks to be forgiven seven times, then you forgive them seven times. So Peter is thinking he's been a good student. He took good notes in class. And he says, Jesus, how often ought we to forgive? Seven times? And then Jesus really blows up his own teaching, suggesting that if we really knew how much we had been forgiven, we wouldn't put the number to only seven, but 70 times seven, probably symbolically a Jesus way of saying, you know, an eternal amount. In the parable that we heard, right, the servant owes 10,000 talents. Now that's something like $5 billion in today's money. The point, of course, is that it's an unpayable amount. It's almost humorous that the servant says, no, no, give me more time, I'll pay it back. It was never going to be paid back. That's really the point. And also the point is that the debt is forgiven. Now, the result of that forgiveness, obviously, should be such profound relief that a $5 billion debt to a mere peasant was just forgiven that, of course, the servant would go on to forgive the 100 denarii debt that his fellow slave owes to him. And yet, the fact that this servant does not forgive the debt of his fellow servant just goes to show how dark his heart really is. What the servant seems to not get is how much he owed the king and how much he was forgiven. And likewise, every Sunday we begin our service with confession of our sin and a word of forgiveness. Do we also recognize just how much we sin against a holy God. The reality is that most of us either intuitively just believe that we have led a good life or we dramatically minimize our sin. I think Jesus is saying that each and every one of us comes before our king with a 10,000 talent debt, a debt that we cannot pay given the goodness and holiness of our king. And Jesus is also saying thanks be to God, that sin can be forgiven. And if you bring yourself before your king, your God, 
with a repentant and contrite heart, you will be forgiven. And in fact, given what we've already said today, you have been forgiven. What grace? What mercy? And to think that we owe so much to God and he freely forgives with no repayment demanded of us at all. And in fact, God does us even one better. He provides the payment in the cross of his own son, Jesus Christ. All he asks is for our repentance, that we would believe and trust in him. Perhaps no more dramatic an example can be offered of the profligacy of God's grace than the story of Pastor Henry Garricky. Who is Pastor Henry Garricky? Well, I just read a, a book about this, and maybe one Sunday for Sunday school, uh, we'll look at this book in its totality. But he was the United States Army chaplain assigned to the 24 Nazis on trial at the Nuremberg trials. Did you know we gave a chaplain to the Nazis who were on trial? He reported that at least four of these Nazis did in fact truly repent of their sins and essentially joined the church again, although he you know, wasn't a pastor of any one church. But he, they joined it to the point that they could receive communion before their executions. Wilhelm, and forgive me for butchering these names, but Wilhelm Keitel, the highest-ranking officer of the German armed forces. Joachim von Ribbentrop, foreign minister and close confidant to Hitler. Minister of the Interior, Wilhelm Frick. And forced labor overseer, that wasn't his official title, but that's what he did. Fritz Salkel. All of these men were found guilty of the kinds of crimes that we can find hard to imagine, much less commit, right? Mass murder, forced slave labor, and every possible form of inhumane brutality. They either committed it, or they looked the other way, or they ignored it. They were surely guilty of horrible, horrible sins and crimes. And yet they were, we believe, according to our doctrine, forgiven before their death. For his ministry to these men, Pastor Garrick, he actually received, he was a Lutheran, by the way, and that's part of why he was chosen. He spoke German. He received hate mail from many people. But isn't that really the point of this parable, right? Yes, we believe that even if your debt is as large as the leader of the Nazi army, it can be forgiven by God. So which of these, these two stories, one from Exodus, one from Matthew, which of these tells the true story of God? The one with the dead Egyptians or the one with the parable about forgiveness? Maybe we can make at least one important distinction by listening to Peter's question again. Listen to what Peter said. Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? See, Peter indicates that this question of forgiveness is one between Christians. And in Henry Garricky's ministry, that's why he would not issue communion to those who had not fully been restored to the church. Hermann Goering, for example, pleaded for communion the night of his suicide. But Pastor Garricky would not issue it to him because he denied the truths of Christianity. He was not repentant. 
But Peter says then, if another member of the church sins against me. Well, see, that certainly limits the scope of the teaching of Jesus, doesn't it? This parable about forgiving 70 times 7, that does not overlook evil or God's justice. It does not say that God's justice can be mocked or taken for granted. It does say, though, that within the church, we are to forgive as much as we have been forgiven, which is a whole lot more than we tend to think. So both of these stories tell the truth about God. God hates wickedness, and he is well within his rights to punish it. And yet, he hates it so much that he became flesh, so that all who trust in him would never be punished in such a way, but they would know eternal life with God. Like a kind king, God allows us to repent and receive the forgiveness that he offers to us. Might we remember the debt that we have been forgiven and forgive one another as we ought? And might the whole world flee from God's judgment and instead live under his reign. Amen.